happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. It is May 9th, 2018, and this is episode number 94 of the EdTech Situation Room, where EdTech News meets analysis having to do with schools, education, and broadly educational technology. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm proud to say I am Dr. Jason Neifer as of about 27 hours ago. I am the assistant director and the curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana, where on Saturday I will be putting on a fancy rented robe and getting some sort of hooded device put around my neck as part of the commencement ceremonies at the University of Montana. And joining me as always this evening is the already Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you tonight? Good evening, Jason. I am so excited for your good news, and that is absolutely wonderful. And that is just in the nick of time. So up to the 10-year limit and then, you know, right before commencement. So uh, I know you exactly. thought it could happen in the summer, but I'm sure, well, I know it feels great to, to have it done. So you'll be able to that surreal surreal experience wearing that nice robe and uh, then you'll get to, to feel like you're a pastor, priest, monk or whatever, you know, when you happen to be at an educational um, event that, that calls on that. Our school, it's wonderful, has all of the faculty and staff wear robes and colors at graduation. Uh, once you've been there five years, they go ahead and buy you your own that you can keep. Right. So I'm this might being my third year, I'm still in the rental mode, but uh, it's it's pretty cool, and and it's kind of neat that you know you're you're reminded of of that every year. It's not just you know that distant memory. So, congratulations. Right. Well, and I want to know one thing, and I mentioned this to my wife earlier tonight, and I forgot. I, I am a Fitbit wearer, as we've discussed in the past in the podcast, and this keeps track of my my uh, uh, resting heart rate. And I noticed this morning that. Last night, my resting heart rate was the lowest it had been in six months. So I think there's a there's a very palpable um, something that has gotten off my back in, in the last 24 hours. So I'm pretty thrilled to be done, and even work today felt a, a little less um, a little less mundane for 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 a May day because uh, things are looking brighter. But the good news is that uh, we don't just have to talk about my recent uh, extra layers at the end of my name. There's amazing news going on this week. Uh, in the techosphere that I think we could spend some interesting time talking about classroom implications and some of the things that we have to talk about will actually uh, impact my dissertation research, which I can talk about a little bit today as well. As a reminder, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, where you can see our show notes from every week. You can download episodes, including little tiny MP3s, if you'd like, or if that's your preference, and, of course, see every link we refer to on the show. Um, Wes, obviously, Google will be a dominant topic this week. We will mention Microsoft a bit as they had a developer conference as well. But where would you like to start us off on this week's news? Uh, well, uh, the Google I.O. conference was this week, and we talked last last week about um, F8 with Facebook and the Microsoft conference. I think the thing that was most interesting to me is what I want to start with for the Google conference, and that is, uh, the Google Assistant making calls on your behalf. Um, there's an article by Nathan uh, Shilalongo from May 8th, 2018. Um, and actually, <laughs> that wasn't what, what that is. Yeah, he didn't write the article. That is a one minute and 20 second clip of the Google I.O. keynote when Sundar Pichai, the CEO, demonstrates that. 
Um, I think you dropped in the article from Chrome Unboxed on May 9th that says Google Duplex is mesmerizing and terrifying. And I will admit to you, <laughs> I have not yet read that whole article. But to summarize, Google um, is going to be allowing, remember, this is the developer conference. So all right. of these things are not available yet to everyone, but they are coming. Um, they are allowing Google to not just be your smart assistant talking to you, but to talk to others. And so the demonstration was an actual phone call to someone who uh, is either taking calls or, or themselves uh, scheduling haircut appointments or hairstyle appointments. And Google is able to respond to, no, I don't have that time available. What do you have? And they negotiate for uh, a day and time on the calendar that's open, basically an appointment slot, just like you can view an appointment slot on Google Calendar, except they're having a conversation back and forth. And so I mentioned I... I Ta-da, I got my hair cut uh, this weekend. I, my hair was kind of messed up. So I'm wearing the Google hat today. But uh, I mentioned that to my hairstylist that, well, you might be uh, getting some some calls from uh, some machines. And just as we've seen with fake news and bots and this whole question of, you know, is it a robot? And that's been not really that big of a deal. For, you know, we had these things called cluster maps back in the day on your blog, and you'd feel good when you saw these dots around the world. You're like, oh, look, someone in Africa is listening to me or reading me or whatever. And then, you know, realizing so many of those accounted for bots. And then with Twitter, similarly, you know, lots of followers could be. So the issue is now not just, you know, the bots that are using social media, perhaps engaging with people. And I think Facebook did send a message to folks who uh, might have been or no, Twitter did. Twitter sent a message to those who would have engaged with bots, I think, in the election. Anyway, this is a new level of engagement. So what? why did the uh, Unbox talk about it being terrifying, Jason? Well, part of it, it's because of, of how, I think, it how quickly you, it's moving forward, right? Like one of the things, I'll, and we'll probably come back to this a couple of different times, looking at both the things announced by Microsoft and the things announced by Google this week, you add to that a lesser extent about Facebook last week. I think a lot of their conference would have been more future-looking if they hadn't been backpedaling related to the Cambridge Analytica scandal. But for Google and Microsoft, the things they are announcing to me are futuristic and exciting and a little stunning in how quickly the technology is developing in light of the past 24 months, right? One of the things that um, I'm starting to get a very clear idea in my mind about why Apple for me is starting to fail as a forward-looking technology company. And um, I know a little more about this, or I can talk a little more about this now that I've completed my dissertation defense. But one of the things I utilized in order to help analyze my data, which, by the way, we've mentioned in the past, my dissertation was about uh, using Siri in a classroom. I, I found a, a, a Montana school district that had one-to-one -one iPad implementations, and I had teachers directly implement Siri as a learning strategy, so student empowerment strategy for students, and I looked at whether or not that had any impact, any impact on student engagement, and it, my data suggested it didn't move the needle at all. There was no statistically significant a change in students' uh, uh, perception of their own engagement. And one of the sources I utilized to inform my research on this was a 2016 article by an author, and I just remember the last name because I'm in dissertation more, more in 2016, said that the adoption curve has impacted the use of Siri for end users because one of the things they point out is that 
talking to an intelligent personal assistant like Siri is kind of like talking to a dog. You have to adopt a certain vocabulary for it to understand you, um, on, you know, as opposed to, you know, uh, being able to talk to it in natural language. Well, I'm, I'm talking about this yesterday and little do I know that at the same time I'm defending my dissertation, Google is announcing naturalistic conversational language in an intelligent personal assistant that is so effective they believe it can call up and make appointments for you. And did you listen to the video sample, Wes, of the hair appointment? Absolutely. And Pachai did mention that they had numerous examples of it not working. So they had lots of recordings that they did, and they played one of the good ones. So this isn't a fully baked, it's going to be perfect every time. But it is pretty incredible that it is effective as it is. And, um, yeah, we're going to be taught. We're not just going to be texting and interacting in social media with bots, potentially. Uh, we're going to, I mean, we're already receiving robocalls, or I know I am a a much higher number of those than I have in the past, but those are just recordings. Um, but now it's going to be trickier and trickier as oh. the voices get better. And as the, I mean, think about this fishing, right? That's right. what these robocalls oh, are Lord. essentially yeah. they're fishing to like, Oh, you're a veteran and you might be interested in refinancing your house or, you know, whatever they think the hook is. Heaven forbid you ever get on a list of a timeshare. You know, we never, we have never purchased a timeshare, but we did go to some timeshare presentations and, you know, it, it, it's, it's uh, trickled off, but you know, we ended up on some kind of a list and I, right. I still, you know, you know, a few times a year get a, a call and like, please take me off your list. We do not have a timeshare. We never have, we don't have one we want to sell. Right. So uh, and that also, that segues really well, actually, to the idea of privacy and what we share, because what we share will be exploited by marketers. And if you enjoy junk mail, then maybe this isn't a problem. But, you know, so much of junk mail is sort of spray and pray, you know, right. where they're just hoping you're going to be interested in furniture or the latest, uh, you know, home decor or whatever people are trying to advertise. Um, targeted advertising is, you know, what, what advertisers want because there's a greater possibility that if you're in this demographic or you've purchased this before or all the different algorithms that they'll run, the data that they'll analyze to say, ah, you're this age, you've purchased these things, you like this set of, of items, you're right. a good candidate for such and such. Um, we got to look at this stuff carefully. And so I'm glad that we have uh, a dialogue that has started, but when you look at the statistics of people's use for Facebook, right. I think in general, the, our society has kind of heard the Cambridge Analytica news and they've said, meh, and gone on to life as before in terms right. of usage of, of the platforms. Um, so, but it is pretty, pretty, um, dramatic to see how quickly these things are coming. And, you know, our analysis of Google IO, especially last year, um, as well as, you know, continuing now just raises to my mind in the, in the forefront, the power of AI, the importance of AI, how quickly that's marching forward. Um, our son is minoring now in, um, well, it's computer science, but it's, um, robotics and intelligence systems. And so thinking about the ways in which algorithms are going to be, uh, influencing all kinds of things and playing a role in that. So. Yeah, the future, the jobs of the future, anything involving AI and algorithms. Absolutely so. Um, let's see, a couple other uh, interesting – well, there was there was tons of interesting developments. It's going to be very um, 
to be very frank, um, I I got so deep in the first couple of them that that uh, I, I, there's there's hundreds I probably haven't even seen because that was a pretty jam packed set of presentations yesterday. Um, uh, one that really uh, caught my interest: Google Maps is going to be updated with a new feature that allows you to, in essence, um, uh, use augmented reality in its walking directions. And there was a demo of this there, and they were talking about a lot of smaller updates. For example, Google Maps is going to add a new tab that I, I think it's called social or your maps or something that in essence puts in kind of like a Yelp-like experience where it talks about new restaurants in your neighborhood and uh, places that are of interest or, or maybe places that are popular or what's trending right now in your neighborhood, which is a very interesting concept of, of using kind of what we use for the internet with links and news, but making it more real in the physical space around you. But they also talked about that Google had been uh, working on a classic problem when you're utilizing directions on Google Maps that it says, you know, head south on, um, you know, 2nd Street, for example, but how do you know where is south if you don't know that already? And so they demonstrated the strategy that I'm sure most people use, which is you start walking in a direction and see where the dot goes, right? which is actually not a great strategy in places like Seattle where the tall buildings in, in the downtown arena make it difficult for you to oftentimes keep your direct and, and exact location. But they are going to open up a screen on Google Maps with walking directions that utilizes the pictures it's taken as part of the Google Map architecture, the little Google cars that go around and take street view. And it's going to essentially offer you an augmented reality where it's going to label streets and buildings for you so you can get your bearings before you start walking directions. And that's a little thing, but very clever, I think, and, and a good way to utilize, um, you know, the camera on your phone. Um, at the same time, um, they're also going to be uh, working on other augmented uh, type reality things that are very useful. For example, the Google Lens app, which is something I believe we've talked about in the past uh, here on the podcast, will actually allow you to do things like copy text from a picture, a live picture, and then paste that into other locations. And so the example that I saw in the news was like, if you have a, a written down Wi-Fi password, for example, like on a hotel key card, for example, and you, you'll put, turn your camera on, you can live pull text from the camera, which is just like futuristic Jetson stuff, right? Like it really adds a lot of interesting functionality. And one other thing that I thought was also super interesting mentioning of AI, and they showed this as a demonstration. Sudar Chai showed a black and white, black and white photo that uh, he was showing uh, using AI in an interesting way. Google Photos is going to allow you, are uh, going to add additional ways to manipulate photos. And one of the ways is they're going to be able to colorize black and white photos. And they showed a black and white photo that was clearly 80, 90 years old and the colorization looks like black and white photo colorization it looks slightly crayony right like it's never totally going to be accurate but it was pretty amazing stuff and again powered by ai so other interesting little tricks that um uh google's inserting into um its universe anything else that tempted your fancy oh definitely i think we can probably talk a little more we, this is our largest set of links which by the way you can find at edtechsr.com slash links where there's a google document um i just dropped this one in before the show this is from the verge on may 8th android p an exclusive first look at google's most ambitious update in years and most of this is about the wellness features which google is rolling out so yes. um they are 
not just trying to get us more addicted to our device, but with this new update, really encouraging people to be aware of how much time we're spending in different apps on the phone in its entirety, being able to set targets. So if you want to be on a particular app uh, for, you know, not more, you know, getting a gauge. This is something that the the Disney Circle um, device at home has has uh, helped us do admittedly more with our daughters than with ourselves. Um, I like how that, for instance, with YouTube aggregates both a time spent in the browser with YouTube or time spent in the app, you know, and whether that's on a, a laptop or a phone or, or any kind of device. So, you know, one of the challenges I see with this is I do have my Android phone here since November, but I'm on my iPad quite a bit in the evening right. and when I'm consuming and, um, you know, then I'm on my laptop, but and then also like with Twitter, I'm on, I actually use the, the browser version of Twitter mostly. I mean, I, I use apps yeah. sometimes too. Um, but anyway, it's an attempt at, you know, digital wellness, digital citizenship. Um, they're stepping up to their responsibility in that article. They talk about, you know, how many millions of users of Android that they have and how they need to take that seriously in terms of, of helping people um, being aware of the time that they're spending. Uh, you can also have, um, a time in the evening where your device's screen is actually going to, I think, gray and it's like wind down time or something like that. And so um, it's to it's to help you um, recognize, you know, again, how long you're spending and, you know, if you're going to want to, um, re- you know, stop that at some point in the evening or you're going to be prepared. So, yeah, it's a feature called wind down. They also have this beta of Android P available for more devices, and I checked the list. It's not in um, that particular article, but it basically looks like you need to have um, Pixel, Pixel XL, Pixel 2, Pixel right. 2 XL, uh, Android emulator, uh, Nexus 5X, Nexus 6, 6P, um, and so those are basically the ones that you will be able to roll out. They haven't announced what the, the P in Android P represents yet. So do you already have pretty much that data, Jason, or do you feel like this will be some, some news to you if, if they're rolling out these wellness features to the phone? Um, I, I keep a close eye on that. I mean, I'm not perfect at, at casting away things, and I find myself in times of stress, for example, utilizing uh, my phone later at night than I should. Or I work really hard to keep phones out of my bedroom. That's a, a big critical thing for me, both because of the light issue and also because I do believe all the things we've talked about here in the podcast related to apps and information uh, being kind of a driver of adrenaline. And I, you know, I, 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 I like uh, to, to try to be mindful of that, but I really like it that they're trying to bake that into the phone. Um, and, you know, the way a lot of tech news uh, portrayed that in the last 24 hours is that it's, these are features that actually will make you use the phone less. And the fact that Google recognizes that as a desire by its end users and that they're responding to that without having to move to third-party apps, I think is a really, really interesting concept and makes Android different than, than other groups, I think, uh, that, that are, are putting together smartphone, smartphone platforms. Um, I also feel that uh, Android is, well, it just it seemed the, the, the broader sense of all these things together weave to, to, to more innovation than I think is coming out of other platforms. And I, I, it's obviously, it's easy to pick on iOS here, but you know, I think that's the same is true that 
um, you know, of uh, kind of third party platforms. We don't mention Tizen here a lot. Um, there are uh, other folks and there are other uh, operating systems in China that are starting to get some traction uh, because there's a, a fear that Android at some point won't be available if, if uh, Google starts to restrict the environment more or ask for more licensing uh, uh, restrictions to use a- Android, especially the Google apps inside of Android. But the thing I keep thinking of that is that I think Google's really staying ahead here and pushing innovation. And, you know, that that's that's a that's a good thing, I think, for the market. The one thing I do think is sad, you mentioned Android P, is that very few phones have Android O right now. And that's a real concern that I have about this. Like, I'm thrilled about a lot of the advancements. I really feel like Google knocked it out of the park this year when it comes to futuristic um, Android uh, devices. But I'm currently not using a Google phone I have uh, once in the past, and I really liked it. It's a great phone. Uh, the battery life wasn't great. It was a Nexus 6, uh, which is, I think, a four-year-old model now. Um, I'm using an LG V20 right now, which is something I picked up on the, the super scratch and dent used uh, that was a great phone that was premium priced and then um, a lot cheaper used. It doesn't even have Android 8 at this point. And so talking about Android 9, or what I guess could theoretically be 8.2, but whatever they decide to go with version-wise – it's a little disappointing to me. And that's one yeah. way that Apple dominates really Android that when, you know, Apple introduces a new operating system, even if it doesn't have all the features, it goes back to very old phones. And, um, that's, you know, that, that's part of what tempers my, my excitement about these, these developments. Yeah. And I just look, I'm running Android 711. Um, and there's no option to upgrade, right? I think it's up to my handset manufacturer whether I'm going to be able to. Is that correct? I'm sorry, say that again, Wes. Is it, it's up to my handset manufacturer whether I'm going to be able to upgrade? It is. Well, a handset manufacturer and who you go through from a, from a, a carrier standpoint, because uh, this is especially true of Verizon. It's, it's less true of T-Mobile and AT&T, but Verizon is a good example of this, that they receive factory images from manufacturers, and then they make tweaks based on their network and their restrictions uh, based on what, what phones can do on their network. And so in the Android environment, like right now, uh, Android 8, uh, is available for the LG V20. It's announced. It's released in a couple of countries. I believe that uh, care that non-carrier unlocked phones, so purchased unlocked phones, you can download uh, the the ROM to update your device. But I have to wait for T-Mobile to vet the V20, and they deliver me the V20 Android 8.0 um, adaptations. And because it was released with Android 7 on it, um, and I think I'm up to, up to 7.1 as well, but because it was released with Android 7, they only guarantee two years of updates, so I'm highly unlikely to see Android 9 or Android P, and that's just, that's a place where I think Google still isn't really figuring it out yet. They just don't get the updates. So let me offer another thought about why the $140 almost burner phone, you know, could be great, because had I dropped $1,000 for a Samsung phone or whatever the the latest right. Pixel, you know, um, my wife would flip if I was like, oh, I think I'm going to just get another phone. But, you know, this is the, what, the Motorola S4, E4, E4 phone. And um, I'm moderately happy with it. 
overall, I'm really happy with Google. In fact, I've been having some conversations with family members and I need to write a blog post about this, you know, where I am, whatever this was in November. So I'm about six. Well, I'm all, yeah, I'm about six months in now. Um, I'm, 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 I'm happy overall. And I'm, I'm also, I could go back to iPhone someday, but what I want to do is actually, uh, experience this on, um, a better phone, but what you're describing makes it sound like I might even just think about getting another phone that's not too expensive, but has right. the latest operating system. That certainly would play into this whole idea of disposable electronics and how, you know, companies would tend to just want us to discard and, you know, pick up, pick up something new, but brings up the issue of how, how often do you need to get your new gear and your new equipment? That's a bummer that you right. can't just say, Hey, I'm downloading the latest version. I got to wait for multiple permissions in order to get it. Um, but Hey, with a $140 phone and a SIM card or SD card that I can, you know, just pick up and it's 128 gig. I can throw that in my next phone. Um, yeah, it's, that's interesting. Um, I wanted, there's another article that touches on this as well. Uh, this is from Variety magazine on May 8th. It says for Facebook changes political for Google, it's personal. And so it's contrasting how much time Zuckerberg had to spend on apologies and on, you know, what they were doing to address stuff and how Google, you know, really hasn't faced the, the level of criticism and uh, public shaming that Facebook has. And again, they're, they're focused on wellness and helping uh, folks with digital well-being um, and focusing on innovation and being able to, to jump into that. So I thought that was, that was interesting to, to contrast the two. And on the, on the topic of Facebook as well, we've got this article under the heading of privacy and security. This one really caught my eye, being a Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, Gizmodo, May 4th, Facebook has a Sauron alert to protect employees' privacy, but not yours. And so uh, they don't call it that. Actually, Facebook had a formal response to the Gizmodo um, article or author when they inquired about this. They call it Security Watchdog now. They changed the name in 2015. And boy, what it one of the things that really points out is how certain employees at Facebook have access to everything about your data. And so they're evidently trying to really limit that much in the same way as military classification. I think Edward Snowden and NSA and access to, to everything, um, the government and our lettered agencies um, limit access to who can, you know, search these databases where you put in, for instance, somebody's phone number, social security number, et cetera, and then have everything, you know, that's aggregated. Um, Facebook has that. And perhaps one of the most unfortunate and weird facts of the day in which we live with respect to data privacy is that employees of Facebook have access to that data. And today we don't, they are talking about giving us more opportunity to not only see the data that they have, but also delete that data, but they would have a strong business disincentive to do that because that's, that is their bread and butter. That is why they are so effective in um, allowing advertisers to identify target groups that, that they can pay to reach. And I think it's going to take regulation and, you know, a force of the hand by uh, bodies like, you know, the EU is doing with the, the GDPR and, and, you know, having the United States Congress do that as well. Um, it's probably not going to, to just happen on their own that they're going to give us those those kinds of of uh, data tools. So, Jason, are you at all concerned about a Sauron alert 
And, uh, is it, is it something, have you run into catfishing or any of these other kinds of things where someone's using your identity or using your pictures or there's, you know, anything malicious going on like that? I, I've not run into it personally. I know plenty of folks that have, however, and that ranges from, you know, lightweight stuff where as a prank or joke, someone starts an alternative account with photos they steal from you on Facebook and do that to, I, 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 I second and third hand know some folks that had their identity straight stolen, utilizing social media information, creating separate accounts to help justify and, and prove identity and that sort of thing. And, um, that led to, you know, other more unpleasant things later on. And, you know, I, I think I'm sure that there's people working on this, but at some point it needs to be about identity and, and associating accounts with you in a way that's beyond self-reporting, right? Like right now we can claim an identity by claiming it's ours. There's very little verification that goes into creating accounts um, that, that are ultimately associated with you. And there are, well, I mean, it, it, it's uh, when, when I'm searching for links every week for this podcast, there's always an article or two with a new twist about uh, accounts, something going wrong. The one I saw today that was new to me was people taking student loans out in your name. Like, how do you deal with that if you find out that someone's been taking student loans out in your name? Now, when I or, hear that, or any, any kind of loans, you yeah, know, being really. a car, um, you know, just affecting your credit rating because right. they're getting money. Well, the thing I keep running into is that student loans usually get paid directly to schools. So what, like, what happens if someone gets a credential uh, with your name, right? Like, what good does that do the other person if they're not able to keep your identity for, for the longest of, of times? That said, if someone wants to give me some extra degrees, you know, <laughs> I can claim them uh, for, for that purpose later. But it just, it's bizarre to me that, that occurs. But it, there's new twists to that all the time. And I think until we get to a point where we can, you know, in biometrics is probably involved, but we can absolutely associate ourselves with everything from our Amazon accounts to social media accounts to, to email accounts. I think these kind of things um, continue to be uh, at risk. And it's, it's like at some point we've developed these problems with technological evolution. We uh, should be capable of developing solutions and I have no doubt at some point we, we will, but it, does give me quite a bit of pause and it is a bit terrifying that um you know we seem to be kind of heading quickly in this direction and we just don't have a real sense of how we might you know positively protect ourselves in these environments i know you dropped a few articles about uh, microsoft in there you want to take us to a few of those Sure. Um, I think it's a bad call for Microsoft to go on the same week as Google because in the same way that Apple tends to suck all the oxygen out of the news when they're announcing, um, I think the same thing is also true of, of Google. So, uh, you know, sorry, Microsoft, uh, that you were relegated to kind of second-class citizen status in the podcast today. Um, there are a lot of interesting things going on at Microsoft, and, and I have to say, and I, and I cannot believe I'm saying this as kind of a one-time Apple fanboy, I feel like there's more exciting things going on on Windows 10 than there is right now on um, on uh, on Mac OS. I, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of interesting things going on in, the, in that arena. Um, I did tweet out an, an angry tweet today because I needed to get on a conference call at 4 o'clock today that was on, um, I can't remember which platform it was on, but I, I couldn't do it on a Chromebook, which is my you know 90% machine now is, is Chromebook time, and so I need to jump on my iMac at work, and it's the first time in... Um, I, 
uh, well, I'd say four or five days, I loaded it up, um, and so it had an update. So I said, yes, go ahead and restart, and it took it 45 minutes to install the update. And I remember the good old days when, you know, unless we were talking about major updates, that, you know, updates would just happen in the background, and we restart, it would take a minute or two, it was no big deal, and I was like, oh. It's like more evidence that the elegance of the Mac experience is really starting to become, um, you know, a, a thing of the past. But ignoring that for a moment, Microsoft announced a, a, a several interesting things. First, uh, Cortana is going to be a, available now via um, the Amazon Virtual Assistant. Uh, the A, I will not say her name out loud. Um, the Divine Miss A, I think as we've called her in the past. And um, all you have to do is, is, is call on Miss A and say open Cortana, and then Cortana will be available to you, apparently utilizing the same kind of data that's available to Cortana on the PC platform. Form. And it's an interesting play on Microsoft's part because they get to essentially forego having to have smart speakers built around their platform. They've simply slipped theirs into the Amazon platform, which is still the, the most adopted um, uh, uh, in the United States. Actually, I think around the world that's true as well. Um, other announcements, they announced uh, something that is, is uh, an accessibility play, uh, that they are um, using AI for um, accessibility, in my understanding, and there's a couple things around this. There's a tool that was announced um, as part of a We Day last week, which is a community service initiative that Microsoft is a big supporter of. They had a We Day in Seattle last Thursday and Friday, and they are working, or they they're working on an app, and I, I wish I'd remember the name, and I was going to put the link in, and I forgot. But essentially, it's a smartphone app that can give you visual clues of what's going on in your surroundings via looking through the camera and guessing what's happening. And and they're starting to adapt more AI into accessibility features. And so it's a really big play on the fact that accessibility is more than just, um, you know, making things accessible for screen readers, but really using um, AI uh, to, to make the tools better and more uh, more proactive. And then there were a lot of smaller things announced related to the architecture uh, that Microsoft pushes, which they have a number of really interesting um, things coming out in the server space um, in an attempt, I think, to be competitive with uh, Amazon in particular. But AI-related uh, 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 integrations with their Office 365 platform were all in place. Um, but a separate article I also dropped into the show notes has, I think, the most exciting development is that they are uh, uh, announcing a Windows 10 integration between your desktop or laptop computer and either your Android or your iOS smartphone where you can, and I, I, I don't know how this exactly works on the iOS platform because I thought these AI or these uh, um, uh, 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 functionality was shut down to external systems, but apparently you can text and read text from the desktop now, uh, natively built into the uh, uh, Windows 10, as opposed to getting a third-party app that does that. And my understanding too that it can do other, it can it, it can hook in with other parts of your cell phone, grabbing pictures and that sort of thing to to make that a fairly effortless transition. In the same way that the Apple environment tends to do that between all of Apple devices together, right? Con and continuity. 
continuity, pretty elegant experience there. They're looking to replicate that on Windows 10, but primarily for the Android platform, but apparently also for the iOS platform. So out of curiosity, Wes, are any of these, these items tempting to you as an end user? Not really. I've mentioned before on the show, uh, Tommy Snyder, who works with us part time, you know, had the Windows phone when it was being able to just become the desktop, the full blown right. OS. Uh, you've mentioned, I think last week, you're going to test just using a phone with some of these laptop things you can just plug in and, you know, I, that, that is intriguing to me. I'm not intrigued enough to want to become an early adopter with it. But uh, I think we are. It's the whole William Gibson, the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. We're seeing glimpses of the future um, because let's face it, when this small device has 10, 100 times, 1,000 times the processing power of it, you know, it will become ridiculous to think about why I'm, you know, paying for this and for this. And, you know, I mean, it is going to be an issue of screen size in terms of, you know, how I want to interact, right. how good or poor my vision is and and things like that but when i can bring all the local data with me in my pocket in a small right. form factor and you know plug into the cloud i mean it's it that is a, a very exciting and intriguing uh revelation and, and to see Microsoft moving in this direction where they're going to work with both iPhone and Android, still working to carve out that niche for themselves. When you were talking about operating systems in the 45 minute update for Apple, you know, I was reminded of the iOS nine to iOS 10 transition. And that happened in the late 1990s with Apple. That was a big part of the yep. Steve Jobs return. He had bought next or not bought, but he had, well, he founded next. And then, you know, when he returned to Apple as CEO, uh, brokered, you know, the takeover. And so the next kernel, which was a computer built on Linux became the Mac OS. And it was so important because Mac OS 9 in its later days was very unstable. The bomb, you know, that you would see with the screen crash and the freeze and we had extensions that would load up and you disable extensions by holding down option and you sometimes have to have to troubleshoot. But I mean, that was a monumental thing to shepherd through a new operating system. But that really, you know, has propelled Apple and the Mac OS to today. And so I think the initiatives that we've seen Google working on, we talk about innovation, you know, with different operating systems, um, the ways that I think Microsoft is, they're trying to figure this out, right? They've got a whole huge install base with, with Windows and with Office. And it's that innovators dilemma where they've got profit and money flowing into the company, but they know that won't be able to keep them forever. And they've got to carve out this niche for how they're going to innovate and how they're going to grow into the future. So I think that we're going to continue to see reboots in operating systems when things get so bloated. And especially, you know, with Chrome, that's one of the reasons it's so exciting for schools is because it truly was from the ground up built by by Google programmers. And we can do things like go to advanced settings and click on power wash and in a few minutes have a completely pristine device that has the latest OS, has everything that could be malware or bad wiped off of it, you know, and you can hand that to a student or yes, even a teacher user and say, here's your pristine device. Now, sometimes it'll happen that when you log into your account, you still have extensions and things that come down from the cloud. 
I mean, you know, there's always complications, but I think the thought I have is I'm intrigued by the ways in which Microsoft is continuing to innovate. We're seeing Google and Chrome and Chrome, Chromebook manufacturers innovate. And I just, I really think that if you are a director of technology, if you're into ed tech, and to a degree, we're all computer people, right? We've tended to say, oh, those are the computer people. Hey, all of us rely on these devices and this technology uh, to to <laughs> figuratively breathe at, at school and work. You know, without the connectivity and without the devices, um, most of us cannot function today in a purely analog mode. So I think right. it's really important, and uh, we we want to continue, you know, taking a careful look at what is going to be able to help our our users back, you know, back to the classroom and the school. You know, what's going to help them do what they need to do. Um, we're going to continue to have those kind of conversations about what do you need. I had one this morning with one of our our principals and teachers, and we're talking about refresh. and And my question was because uh, one of the discussions was about you know, these legacy Mac laptops. And I, my question was, you know, what do you need to do that requires a full-blown Mac platform? Is there any software? Is there any task that can't be done with Chrome? It's an essential question because we want to empower people. We want folks to be able to create and make and connect and, you know, not just be at a low level of technology use, but be at a, at a high level. The fact is you can be at that high level with some devices today that that are are low on the cost scale and they're very uh, easy relatively speaking on the IT maintenance scale. So, I'm excited to see Microsoft doing this. I'm not going to rush down to the Microsoft store and buy anything else. However, <laughs> we are looking at <laughs> VR and in that area, you know, I I could see us over the summer, you know, making a purchase especially so our 8-year-old daughter, but perhaps others of us, you know, can participate in the virtual reality revolution and paint and draw with fire and other things that we're not right. going to normally let her touch and build with at the house. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So, okay. So there was other news, although again, it's hard on a few, especially a double week, Microsoft and Google announcing developer stuff. The, while the oxygen is out of that news environment, is there anything else you want to absolutely cover this week? Yeah, um, a couple articles that are kind of fun. Uh, this is from The Atlantic on April 30th. Artificial intelligence is cracking open the Vatican's secret li uh, archives. Um, they point out in this article that it really, um, it really shouldn't necessarily be called the secret archives. Um, they're more like the private archives, I guess, because you can get access to this, um, you know, with the right academic credentials or, you know, other connections. But you have to pour through all of these paper documents. And so scanning really, you know, hasn't and, and just straight up digitization has has not brought a transformative um, um, level of, of uh, I, I guess, I'm not saying it right. I was going to say mojo, but I mean, it just it hasn't transformed the Vatican Library, but they're they're looking at using AI now and the analysis that they're doing yeah, uh, with machine learning is to be able to put together these pieces with the with the different kinds of scripts, and they've actually crowdsourced this to some high school students. The team recruited students at 24 schools in Italy to build the project's memory banks, and so they were looking, for instance, at these you know different uh, types of characters, and then they're identifying what it is, and they're using machine learning. So they're teaching the machines to actually read. Um, you know, not just this, the same way that, that OCR has, has been in the past. So I thought that was a, a fascinating read. 
And then this one was pretty good, too. This is from the, the conversation on September 5th, 2017. So this is a little older. Um, but it's uh, an article titled The Internet of Things is Sending Us Back to the Middle Ages. And it's talking about ownership and ownership of devices. And it's not just DRM and music and media, but it's talking about the ways in which, um, you know, technology companies are wanting to retain the right to update or not update your device to say that the software they have, you, you know, it's a Jedi mind trick. You really haven't purchased this software that you thought you'd purchased. You've just licensed it. It's really still ours. And we can really say things like if you, you know, crack that open, you've, you know, violated laws and, uh, you know, bad things are going to happen. And we're not going to, you know, let you just open up your hood, for instance, like you can for your car and, and replace something. Um, and so it has a very interesting metaphor about feudalism and who gets to control property and the ways in which that was something that the, the king or the local lord had. It wasn't something that individuals have. And so I thought that was thought provoking. And um, again, as we talk about privacy and regulation and things like that, I think, uh, yeah, it's something to talk about in, in the context of digital citizenship and citizenship in general. Are we going to assert our DIY rights to be able to right. modify things and change things? Or are we going to let corporations and companies, you know, say things that sound pretty irrational, like, you know, you've bought this, but you really didn't buy what's inside and we're really not going to let you you know, make changes to it. So both right. of those were pretty good articles. Well, let me harken back to an earlier comment you made related to the kind of di digital junking of our world because the devices don't seem to last that long and then you have little control on what to do with them. I mean, that's part of the problem with operating systems on phones. Uh, we, this was three or four months ago, mentioned an article that said that Samsung was apparently going to start allowing older phones and devices to be unlocked so you could erase them and uh, install alternative operating systems, which is a very onerous process right now. Uh, there are actually a lot of operating system options on Android phones that you can download and install that are great on older hardware or have special uh, niches to them, like, for example, privacy perhaps, uh, uh, more aggressive privacy protections. Um, could do interesting bits and pieces, but it's so difficult. And, and I'm, I'm a nerd and I have only been able to successfully, uh, install an alternative Android operating system on one phone in my history of, of phone ownership in the Android world. And to be honest, I probably would do that way more if it was easy and accessible for me to do so. The fact that you can't download um, on your phone, especially an older phone, something that's maybe more scaled back or simplistic, installed on your phone to get better battery life or uh, more life out of a slower phone is extraordinary to me because of you know the, the ability to lock phones down for some reason, right? You still paid for the hardware, right? So uh, you've got the hardware and yet you're prevented from doing what you want to with it because of, of, of licensing and lockdown restrictions. And um, yeah, that is scary. And I, I remember back, I think it was Ford, maybe it was, it was Chevrolet. I can't really remember if it was a General Motors or Ford thing, but um, there were uh, claims that you couldn't do things with uh, certain engine parts because they had software coded on them. I could be, I'm, I, I know I'm not making this up, but well, I can't John, remember the specifics. John Deere has similar kinds of things with their truck. That was it. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Farmers, farmers can't just pull into the barn, you know, and get out the toolbox and start doing stuff. Um, right. They're, they're restricted on what they're able to legally do.
Right, because of software that's integrated on the engine systems, right? And it's not a it's not a hardware issue; it's a it's a software issue. You can't do that with hardware, at least the way our 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 laws that protect consumers work right now. But as as a, a protected notion, software is like that. And yeah, I agree. I think this is a, a, a not a great thing. It also significantly impacts schools too. I I have a tool I'll talk about a little bit later that deals with the problem with uh, a Windows drivers in semi-recent machines that are starting to not be supported by the end manufacturer, and I'll go into that details later, but it, you know, Windows 10 is supposed to, it was supposed to be the forever OS, right? It updates every six months, and you can use it for a long time. Well, as it turns out, the fourth version of Windows that was released a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, uh, recently on the podcast, as it turns out, that software is not, um, is not for computers that are four or five years old, and a lot of Manufacturers don't uh, don't offer drivers for the latest version of Windows 10, which means that once again, even if you have a useful piece of hardware still that's that's relatively recent, you might not be able to get updates on on that anymore. And that's that's all about turning around to sell more stuff. Where I think you know we should be making it to where it's it lasts as long as it can, and provides useful uh, a term of life, even if that means it's a slightly more aggressive investment in hardware. You know, uh, that's it's a it's a dangerous thing. Um, and phones are, are are a good example of that as well. Yep, absolutely. Makes me think of the article we talked about uh, last week with the guy who was you know in, uh, convicted of uh, burning these Windows Restore discs. Right. And you know the the impetus that Microsoft or I guess it was Dell, but it's Microsoft. You know, once says, hey, you know, don't well, don't make money off of that. We're going to be the ones to make any money. And overall, we just assume have people buy new devices than, you know, make make them last or, or outlast what we foresee, foresee as their right. um, predicted life cycle. So Absolutely so. Um, well, us anything else before we jump into our geeks of the week? No, I'm good to go there. Okay, great. Well, um, I have one I'll share, and then um, we'll go to you, Wes, and close it down for the week. So I'd like to share an interesting application I ran into a couple of weeks ago. This is the Snappy Driver uh, installer, and it's a piece of open-source software, and I'll explain why that's important in a moment. But this is a Windows-only software suite that you download. You can actually download it onto a, a flash drive along with 16 gigabytes of drivers so where it doesn't have to go out to the Internet to download drivers. But the premise of the software is very simple. You download it and analyzes your current machine, looks at all the hardware that's part of your laptop or desktop machine, and finds the best driver available for the hardware. So, for example, if your video card or the video system in your laptop or desktop computer has a driver that may be the newest version available, but there's a more optimal uh, driver available, perhaps a manufacturer-based driver as opposed to the Windows uh, uh, Microsoft-based driver, it downloads and installs that for you. The reason why this is important is twofold. First, as I'm starting to experience, especially working with others to install Windows 10 on slightly older devices, uh, Windows 10 works really well with a computer with 8 gigabytes of RAM and an SSD drive that's as old as 8 or 9 years old, which is a kind of an ancient computer in a lot of ways. But Windows 10 is felt enough that you can install that. The problem is 
that you can't go to Lenovo, for example, and say, give me Windows 10 drivers for the the uh, Lenovo X201, which is their ultra portable from 2011, because it's no longer supported by Lenovo for Windows 10. And yet trying to find Windows 10 based drivers for that is difficult. This app scans your computer, finds internet-based drivers to download, and then installs those. So it doesn't really matter what version of a computer you're using. If it's a, if there's something available that's modern that works in the machine, it downloads and installs that. Um, a couple of weeks ago on a desktop, uh, a relatively recent gamer desktop I have at home that's my, my main desktop, uh, it found a better driver for my Wi-Fi system that it made it infinitely more stable than the one that both HP and Windows was trying to push to me as a driver, and so it was very useful. The second reason why this is a good tool, however, is that it's open source, and it's not trying to install spyware on your computer. There are dozens of software suites that claim to do exactly this that are, in essence, adware or spyware, or they cost 50 or or $100. This one's open source, um, it, it's, it's, uh, entire funding source. You can offer to give it money via Patreon, which I, I have done because of the use I get out of the software. And, um, it is highly unlikely to deliver you payloads of, 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 of nasty, which you can't say with the other free software that's available in this, this realm. So that's the snappy driver installer. And then the link is in the show notes. Awesome. And that reminds me, it is so important to help our family members and students and everyone discern what is a ripoff and what is legit. Um, our daughter is having to complete some defensive driving by the end of this month. And so last night we were just online and we found one for 25 bucks. Interesting. Triple A was going to be 50, but we found another Oklahoma certified one for 25 bucks. And, you know, as we're looking at the ads, I'm like, don't click on that. And she's like, how do you know? I mean, we need to sit down together and I think search for things and talk about, you know, ad blockers. And because uh, that's something else to not take for granted is that everyone's seeing the same web you do. If you're using uBlock Origin or some other kind of ad blocker, you are seeing a different, you know, set of search results when you, when you search. So anyway, that just makes me think that's just a critical literacy skill. Um, one of the things, of course, we can turn to is trusted sources. So we thank you if you're listening to the EdTech Situation Room. And certainly we turn to all kinds of trusted sources when it comes to software and, and other kinds of things. Uh, sometimes that's a professional writing for CNET or uh, Chrome Unboxed or whatever. And other times it's, you know, just an, just another person out there, another educator uh, who's trying stuff. Um, I've got two pieces of... Uh, helpful software. One's a downloadable and one's web-based. Um, I was uh, helping a friend who is getting ready to go to a college conference to tout Cotty College, uh, which is a wonderful women's college in Southeast Missouri. Uh, she's going to take several DVDs and wants to play them in a loop. And I said, well, let's just rip them and, you know, stitch them together and you can just play it. And she's like, what? And so Handbrake is still my go-to software uh, for this. You can play, uh, use this on multiple platforms. I'm using it on a Mac. It will run into difficulty with some DRM protected uh, DVDs. Um, but with things like this, where they've got, you know, a burn DVD that is, uh, you know, so like full, you can burn full link feature, feature link movies, you know, we don't do any of that kind of stuff now with, with streaming media, but with things like this, it's helpful and it is free. So that is called Handbrake and you can access that 
on their website, which is just handbrake.fr, I think for France. And the second one really quickly is the website I'm using to download our shows. Um, one of the things we probably mentioned before is that we provide both a downloaded video version as well as an optimized audio version. The audio version is a 32 kilobit version. Since we're not playing music and Jason's usually not singing on the show and many octaves are playing the organ the harpsichord, whatever, um, you know, we don't have a big audio range, which is just a spoken word. And so you can really uh, sample that down to a lighter, uh, smaller file. Um, we have to grab the file. And rather than downloading it in its full high definition version, which here on YouTube is going to be a 1080 very large file. I've used some different websites and now I'm using this one called y2mate.com. So it's the letter Y is in yellow, the number two, and then mate.com to download audio and video from YouTube. Um, I actually just download the 360p version, which works out to be about 200 megs. Um, and then I convert that with QuickTime Player to an audio M4A format, and then in iTunes, after we get the show description, um, you know, convert it to the MP3 and the and the uh, 32 kilobit version. It really does matter what you're converting that audio when you're downsampling it. Um, you'll have lots of different results, and there's inc different encoders and stuff like that. iTunes does a very nice job with that and lets you do your show art and all that good stuff. So if that is of interest. Uh, officially, you know, I don't think unless you're subscribed to YouTube Red, which is interesting. Now you can do that. You can download all these videos and have them offline. Um, it's a violation of terms of service to just go in there and download the video. Um, however, you know, for your own content, that's a different story. We're talking if, if you're talking about other people's videos. All of those, though, are great conversations to have with students about digital citizenship. <laughs> And uh, it's kind of a cat and mouse game because I think YouTube uh, intentionally defeats some of these different websites that people use for downloading. And, of course, now with YouTube Red, they're just saying, hey, pay us money every month and you won't have any problems. We'll just give you that download link. So those are the Geeks of the Week. There it is. Well, um, let me do a little outro. I'll pitch it to you, Wes, to, to finish this up. Uh, this is the EdTech Situation Room. We are here Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, and I believe it's, uh, I forgot, <laughs> I had it written down. 1,400 UTC, yeah, something like 14 that. Well, no, 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 like, it's like 2 a.m., yeah, like, it? yeah, yeah, it's like 300, 3 o'clock. It's UTC. the middle of the night. Yeah, it's the middle of the night. If you're up watching us in the middle of the night and you're up first, thank you, and second, probably not the standard. So, um, otherwise, if you can't catch us live, you can find us wherever the finest educational technology podcasts are aggregated, which includes places like Stitcher Radio, uh, the iTunes Library, and my latest uh, favorite uh, podcast app on Android, it's called CastBox, where we also happen to be available in their directory as well. So feel free to download us, uh, go to YouTube and see the, the live video archive, or go to our website at techsr.com, where you can find downloads, as Wes mentioned earlier, or our show notes to find out more about that. My name is Jason Neifer. I, I, I have to say just one more time, my name is Dr. Jason Neifer, and this is, I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. You can find um, my semi-regular blogging gig is at the Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And I am happy to announce on behalf of NCCE that we have opened up our request for proposal for the February 2019 conference in 
fabulous Seattle, Washington. So you can find out more about that at the NCC webpage, www.ncc.org. And what about you, Dr. Fryer? Well, I want to give a shout out to Peggy George, who's been in our chat room live. It's always wonderful to have folks in our chat room interacting with us. Uh, and Peggy uh, does uh, a shout out for fixmestick.com, which is uh, a virus removal tool and provides updates. So anyway, the geek of the week coming to you from from Arizona, from Peggy. Um, I am W. Fryer on Twitter, my blog, speedofcreativity.org. And I am continuing to do some updates on our digital citizenship website, uh, digsit.us. And I'm excited to be heading up to the Seattle area here in about a month for a family reunion, possibly some some workshops. But our time is drawing to close, so if we're going to throw something together, I gotta I gotta get something together here. I'm not very good about getting all that uh, together. So thank you all for joining us, and please check us out at edtechsr.com. Tell your friends and join us live if you have the time to do that on a Wednesday night. Thanks. Good night.